Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Sarah Patterson, one of the hosts here on the channel. Today we are talking with Mario Luis Small about his new book, Someone to Talk to. Welcome to the show, Mario. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Sarah. So first, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. So uh, my name is Mario Small. I am a uh, sociologist uh, currently at Harvard University uh, for many years before that at the New Chicago um, I uh, do research in a number of areas, uh, poverty, inequality, uh, social support, social networks, uh, culture, methods. And uh, this book is uh, an expression of my most recent set of interests on networks and how people make use of them. So how did this book come about for you? So this book uh, began probably... Uh, when I was writing my last book, uh, the book I wrote before this is a book uh, that was titled Unanticipated Gains, and it was a study of how mothers who had young children and whose children were enrolled in childcare centers uh, gained access to a whole new set of uh, networks of support as a result of enrolling their kids in a childcare center. They connected to other parents, often in ways they didn't expect. And one of the things I found when doing that book is that mothers seemed, and fathers too, but it was primarily mothers, seemed actually pretty willing to confide, to entrust their kids to people they didn't actually know that well, other parents and so on in the context of emergencies and other situations. They both trusted their kids with them. They also shared a lot of personal things with the with other parents and uh, often with people that didn't really know that well. And part of the reason that was intriguing is that we, we tend to have this idea that, you know, you you first need to have a, a friend before you can turn to that person in the way you typically turn to friends. Uh, in other words, the network formation process comes before the network mobilization process. But here was a case where people seemed to be mobilizing connections to people who weren't really friends, even though they were mobilizing them. I was really curious about this, and I spent some time exploring this idea by reading a lot in how sociologists and psychologists thought about these questions. I read a lot about networks. I read a lot about decision-making, because it seemed to be a decision-making process. I read a lot about cognition and how people understand those around them. And I decided that I would uh, explore this in a more systematic way. And so that's how this book came about. I decided to see if I could explore this idea, focusing really, really precisely or narrowly on the idea that uh, that at times you need other people simply because you need someone to talk to, not because you want to borrow money or because you need to borrow a car or anything really challenging. It's just, you just want to talk. And so I started exploring the question, how is it that people make the decision when because of a loss or a failure 
or distress or victimization or whatever it is, feel the need to talk. And uh, what I ended up doing was focusing on what I found to be a pretty strategic case. Uh, after a lot of uh, discussion with myself and deliberation, I decided on graduate students in their first years in their programs. Um, graduate school is a very tough time, <laughs> particularly PhD programs, but the very first year is especially tough. It's almost universally a difficult time for many people. Uh, for It's almost universally, excuse me, a difficult time. And it's a difficult time in part, not just because being in a new place, in a new job, in a new kind of environment is difficult, but also because for many people, it's a time when they're also making decisions about family and fertility and who they're going to marry and what kind of career they want to have over the long run and what kind of city they want to live and their political motivations and what kind of life they want to live for themselves. And so it ends up being a time when you stress out a lot and therefore you find a lot of needs to talk. And so I thought, well, this would be a great opportunity to decide and to figure out when people feel that need, what do they actually do? Who do they actually turn to? Great. Thank you for that overview. Yeah, I thought, I mean, I'm recently out of graduate school myself. And so I thought that that was a particularly interesting choice, right? Because like you said, everything's sort of shifting. And um, I think later in your book, you actually have this phrase that stuck with me about cosmic overkill and how that sort of, you know, encourages people to talk when those sort of things happen. So I thought it was an interesting choice. Um, but but to get started, so you sort of start out here in chapter one um, with some background in terms of the fact that most studies find that Americans tend to report about three confidants. Um, and you also uh, make reference to Granovetter's really important work on ties. And so I was hoping you could sort of set the stage up for us here. Yeah, so there, I guess there are two important parts of this. One is uh, theoretical, uh, and one is uh, uh, methodological. And maybe there's a third that's substantive. <laughs> but uh, maybe let's begin with the methodological one. So it turns out that, um, well, as you know, we're in a network era. Everybody understands that networks matter. Uh, and by networks, I mean actual networks, not just those online, but those are networks too. Uh, it's not just the case anymore that sociologists and maybe anthropologists and a few psychologists are studying networks. Now networks are everywhere. People in business are studying networks, physicists, chemists, biologists, etc. This is really uh, everywhere. But if you go back to uh, the mid-1980s, uh, as late as the 1980s, no social scientist could tell you with any confidence how large the personal network was of the average American. We just didn't know. And uh, there have been some surveys in particular parts of the country. For example, Claude Fisher, a sociologist at Berkeley, had done a major survey in Northern California. And there were some smaller ones preceding that in, in, in small towns in Illinois and so on. But no big survey that could tell us, here's how many close, here's how many people are in the average uh, personal network of the average American. And so uh, Ron Burt um, who at the time was uh, temporarily at Berkeley, uh, but he later became a professor at the University of Chicago, uh, looked at Claude Fisher's data and they had a conversation and he made a case to the General Social Survey, which is a national survey that happens every two years collecting data on Americans on average. Uh, he convinced the organizers of the General Social Survey back in the 1980s to add a network question to that survey. And the question that he convinced him to add as a simple 
was a simple question. It said, from time to time, uh, people discuss important matters with other people. Looking back over the last six months, who are the people you discuss important matters with? And that was it. And the idea was that people were going to report uh, what later came to be called the core discussion network or their confidence. And we would know how many confidence people have on average. And it turns out that at the time we did the survey, people have about three confidence on average. And uh, this was, uh, this was uh, a small finding, but an important one, because now we could speak with confidence about how many people had in their personal network. Um, we also started developing some ideas about social isolation by looking at those people who said nobody. Uh, right, the people who could not report any confidence. So, so this became a very important question. And part of the reason this is important to my book is, well, of course, uh, this is exactly, in a sense, what I'm looking at, how people decide who to talk to when they need a confidant. Uh, the problem is that uh, uh, that survey actually asks people who they think they talk to. It doesn't necessarily ask them what they've actually done. And even though... Um, uh, you might think, well, people know themselves, and obviously they're going to know who they talk to. In fact, uh, there are a lot of sociological biases that affect how one responds to that question that might actually produce an answer that's inconsistent with what people do in the real world. In other words, you might think that you primarily talk to your, for example, spouse, or your brother, or your mother, or your best friend. But in reality, uh, it could be that although you, in fact, talk to them, you are very likely to also talk to a whole bunch of people in your life whom you don't know that well. And uh, it's just that you're not remembering them when you're answering the question. And so even though the question was important, and by the way, the question became one of the single most replicated questions in network analysis anywhere. There have been versions of that question asked about surveys in Europe and in Asia and all over the country in the United States. But if that question becomes the way you understand how people confide in others, to the extent that people are wrong about what they actually do, the question is actually giving you something other than what you think it's giving you for a very large portion of the population. So that was, this, that was the background uh, for this mythological issue that we needed to sort of unravel. We needed to actually get a sense of what people actually did. Um, in answer to the question about Mark Granovetter, Mark Granovetter was in part important because Granovetter wrote an extremely important paper, probably uh, uh, among, it's arguably the most important paper in network analysis, and it's actually one of the single most cited papers in all of social science, not just sociology. It's a paper that's been cited more than 45,000 times, and it's a paper that is the reason many people have recommended that Granovetter should be a candidate for the Nobel Prize in economics, even though he's not an economist. Now, what's interesting about this paper is that in the paper, Granovetter argued that strong ties have the special characteristic that they tend to be interconnected. So if person A is connected to both persons B and C strongly, then person B is likely to be strongly connected to person C. And uh, the reason this matters is because if there's any connection between A and person D, and therefore to all of the other people that person D knows, if that is the only connection between the group of people A, B, C, and person D, that connection, that single connection between A and D is the only way B or C can get to D, then it's very likely that that AD connection is a weak tie. Uh, 
because if it were a strong tie, then D would be connected to everyone else because strong ties tend to be interconnected. This very beautiful insight led to the idea that only weak ties are likely to be bridges to networks beyond your close personal network. And as a result, weak ties are useful and strong in their own way. The idea that came out of this is the idea that strong ties are very good for social support because of their interconnectedness. And weak ties are very good to acquire new information not already in your network because they're likely to be bridges. So strong ties for support and weak ties for information. What's important about this idea in the context of our book is, or my book, the book that we're talking about, is that the prediction that strong ties are the ones you turn to for support is precisely the same prediction and precisely the same idea that everybody has that when you need someone to talk to, you're very likely to talk to your close friends and family. In other words, the idea that we have by intuition and the idea that is implicit in the general social surveys, very famous question, is an idea that is also from a strict network perspective is theoretically also predicted. But that idea is actually an idea we have barely tested. And one of the things I do in the book is test it. In chapter two, you start to talk about the graduate students and give examples of sort of, you know, the networks that you find for them. And you actually find quite a bit of turnover in those reported um, confidants. And so I wondered if you found that surprising or, and you know, in your appendix, you really talk about how it was sort of an iterative, iterative process. And so I was wondering if you could talk about that more, too. Yeah, so that was actually one of the first surprises uh, from the book. So, uh, so we asked this very famous question, this famous question from a general social survey. We asked all of the graduate students, uh, literally, that is actually how uh, we began each interview. We interviewed each graduate student uh, from the moment they arrived on campus. Most people, about, within about two weeks of their arrival on campus, I think everybody within about a month, as I recall, so the very, 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 very first year, the very, very first point there, some had not even started taking classes yet. And we interviewed them then, then six months later, then again six months later, and then we did a follow-up a year after that. And in that very first question, that very first interview, the very first question was in fact the general social surveys question. From time to time, people discuss important matters with other people, thinking back over the last six months, who are the people you discuss important matters? And uh, we just wrote down what they told us. We just wrote down those names. What's interesting is our graduate students had about five uh, confidants on average, which uh, is more than three, which is more than the national average. But it turns out that it's about the stronger interviewers tend to get. And so uh, if you did uh, a careful in-depth interview process with well-trained interviewers, um, you would you would get about five five and a quarter five and a half people uh, just like we did, so that was that was good. So uh, and uh, you know they named no surprise they named you know their spouse their best friend uh, their parent etc. They named those five people, and then we asked the same question six months later again at the very start of the interview. And the first thing that was interesting is there was a lot of turnover. Uh, on average, um, uh, the overwhelming majority of people uh, in the second interview had dropped uh, at least one person, and the average number of people dropped was about two and a half. 
and the uh, and the overwhelming majority of people had also added somebody, <laughs> and the number of people added on average was about two and a half. Since we began with the of the group of five, so for over the first six months, the total number of people reported stayed the same, about five and a quarter. Uh, but about fifty percent of that network of people uh, had been replaced. That is not what should have happened, according to the theories. Uh, remember that strong ties are interconnected, and in part because they're interconnected, they're mutually reinforcing. And because they're mutually reinforcing, uh, they're stable, right? If uh, if uh, among a group of three very close people, if one person starts to uh, 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 not interact with the others, both of the others are going to get on their case. So strong ties are supposed to be very stable. And this is not what happened here at all. In fact, there was a lot of turnover and there was, again, a lot of turnover between six months and 12 months. And again, a lot of turnover uh, between 12 months and, uh, and 24 months. And so uh, the first thing that happened is already we started seeing evidence that something was not quite right with the theory. Then moving into chapter three, you talk about how, you know, part of the um, goal of the book is to actually ob observe these processes instead of just ask what people think that they do. Um, but you note this methodological issue, which is when a dyad becomes a triad, all dynamics change. And so I was hoping you could talk more sort of about the methodology and the processes you used. Yeah, exactly. So so this turnover is interesting and already inconsistent, with, but notice that we just asked people who they typically talk to and noticed that I said earlier that there might be some issues. So what we did um, is we said, well, let's see if we can actually, instead of figuring out who they say they talk to, what they've actually done. Now, the difficult thing about this is that it is impossible for a sociologist to actually observe one person confiding in another. Um, the moment that you're there as an observer, it becomes a different kind of interaction altogether. This is actually one of uh, the German sociologist Jörg Zimmel's uh, great insights that simply changing the number of people in interaction from two to three changes completely the social interactional dynamic. Among other things, people might be more reticent, might be more reticent than they typically are. They'll share less. They won't share something. Or they might uh, interact in a competitive fashion. It's actually really difficult to predict. Uh, for any random conversation, what will happen if a third person is introduced that uh, would not have happened had it only been two of them? But this is especially likely to be the case when it comes to confiding something personal. You know, if you've really failed at an important test in your life and you're shy or embarrassed about it, but you want to talk about it to vent it, you might, you know, turn to your spouse. But if a sociologist comes in and also tries to observe, <laughs> you're probably not going to say the same thing. And so that was a challenge. And so the question is, if we want to actually observe what people are in fact doing, uh, we have to find some way of tapping into that that is separate from just asking them, what do they typically do? And so what we did is we thought, well, let's go to the interview, but think about the interviews differently. What we did is we asked people, first of all, what are the things they actually deeply worried about? What in their life, whatever it was, what were the three things they worried most about in their, at the moment, in their life as a graduate student. And then separately, we asked them the same question about life in general. And so they would say, for example, things like, you know, um, I don't know whether I belong here, um, or, you know, I feel like uh, 
uh, everyone is actually making a lot more progress than I am. And I'm not doing things that I that other people are doing, but I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to be doing. Or I feel intellectually inadequate and I'm, I'm realizing that for the first time in my life, I'm depressed. Or they might say things like, um, I don't have any money. And, uh, you know, uh, my wife and I just had a baby and uh, we have to apply for Medicaid to get that baby uh, health insurance or whatever it is. right? And so they told us and said, we just recorded it. And then what we did is, okay, rather than asking them, who would you talk to about this? We just asked them, think about the last time you talked about the particular topic they mentioned. And we asked this for, for all of the topics they mentioned. So, for example, if you said, well... You know, um, I'm I'm really embarrassed that I that uh, I I failed in this exam. Uh, we'd say, okay, think about the last time you talked to anybody about this issue. And then we said, that time, whom did you talk to? Name the person you talked to that very last time, not who you typically talk to, but but in that uh, experience, who you talked to. This is an experience-based approach. Some people call it a, a critical events uh, type of approach to understanding uh, people's relations to others. But what it did is essentially gave us an interesting sample of last conversations. And so what we did is we said, okay, even though we know that for every given individual, for any given person, we wouldn't be able to infer what they typically do from that very last conversation. On aggregate, we, have a, we can have a pretty good idea of what the average last conversation was uh, by asking everybody. And so we did that. And what we found, which was very surprising, is that a lot of the time, not only had they not talked to somebody they were close to, they hadn't even talked to somebody they had named a confidant just minutes earlier in that very first question we had asked them. In other words, a lot of the time, they were talking to people other than the people they had named their core discussion network. Yeah, I found that to just be so interesting. Um, I, it's actually kind of funny because after I read this book, I became like hyper aware of, of who I talked to about what. <laughs> so, do you typically only talk to the people? Do you typically only talk to the people you're very close to? Yeah. So, I, well, I thought I did, um, and then it was sort of a little bit what you were talking about in the book, where um, it, it becomes dependent on the topic, actually, right? You know, I, I the part about. Um, sort of who you talk to and why sort of resonated with me because sometimes they're, you know, you don't want to talk to your advisor about this or your mom about that. And so I thought that that was uh, really interesting. But so in chapter four, you move into actually the why people choose certain people. And I thought the interesting thing about this chapter is actually the word avoidance comes up. So it became actually not so much about why they choose certain people, but maybe why they avoid people. Um, and you sort of get into this idea that people are organizationally embedded and there's often hierarchies in addition to emotion, well, concerns about emotional reciprocity. So I was hoping you could talk more about this, sort of the why people chose people and why people avoided other people. Yeah. So, so right. So after we found this, uh, so then, uh, so we found that people were actually very willing, contrary to common sense, in fact, contrary to, to many theorists. So, you know, um, Adam Smith, in his theory of moral sentiments, had predicted that people would only talk to, uh, disclose really personal things to two or three people, um, uh, to the people they were very close to rather than acquaintances. Uh, um, Kant 
how to express the idea that true disclosure is only possible in your life with two or three people, this kind of thing. There are all of these ideas out there uh, in philosophy and uh, sociology dating back centuries. And this is just not what we found. Uh, we found that people, yeah, for sure, sometimes they talk to, you know, their their spouse or, or their mother or whatever it was, but they were very, very willing to talk to people they were not that close to. And so the, the question became why? And uh, the, the the heart of the book uh, uh, it's a set of chapters that tries to unravel why. Now, uh, the the first thing we found is a, a lot of the students uh, were doing this because they were avoiding the people they were close to. Um, and and avoidance actually became really important. And it was this is actually one of the things that I discovered over the course of the project uh, that was not a theory I had ahead of time. I'd never actually thought about this in this particular way, but really became clear after mining the data over and over and, and making sense of the patterns I was discovering. So basically what I, what I think happens is think about the fact that, um, that a relationship can be behaviorally multiplex. And, and what I mean by that is that um, you, have, you have relationships to people that can be, into network terms, that can be simple or simplex. And you have relationships that can be multiplex. And so, for example, with respect to the multiple kinds of behaviors I have in terms of my relationship to my wife, uh, my wife for sure is my intimate, uh, but she's also uh, my financial partner. And she's also uh, about to be my co-parent. Um, and she's also, uh, when I need her to read chapters from my book, uh, my critic. And she's also, when I need her to back me up on something, my advocate and uh, my supporter. So those are, you know, intimate and co-parent and financial partner and critic and advocate. Those are all very different kinds of roles. Now, the relationship, the reason our relationship works is because uh, she knows that when I need her to be a critic, uh, she's a critic, not uh uh, an advocate. So when I need her to read my book critically, I want the critical role. And when I need her to just listen to me vent about something, I want the supporter role. And so the relationship works. Now, what we found is that for a lot of these kinds of relationships, anytime a particular topic uh, risked ambiguity about whether the role that the spouse or the partner or the confidant might elicit would be the right one. In other words, where your expectations might be incompatible with the expectations of them about what role they should perform, people avoided talking to their close, their close, their loved ones or their, the people who are close to them in their network. So, you know, uh, for example, a, a student might say, you know, I, my mother is one of my closest confidants, but I don't talk to her about my boyfriend uh, because um, uh, in our language, when I do so, I'm just venting. And I just wanted to listen, but she might think that she needs to be a protector or, my, or you know, uh, and uh, it might actually hurt our relationship where sometimes all I'm doing is venting, not uh, wanting the protector mother to come in and, and see him as a terrible person in my life. Or people might say, you know, um, you know, if you mentioned advisors, your advisor is actually a very interesting rela- relationship because, you know, when you start in a program and you take a class with somebody, that person is just your teacher. Uh, but then if they hire you as an RA, they're now also your boss. And then uh, they might also be your advisor. And then if you start writing a paper together, they're suddenly your collaborator. And the roles teacher, advisor, boss, 
and collaborator are very different kinds of roles. And you might be reluctant to confide something in your advisor if all you want is the advisor role, but instead you might get one of the other roles, like the boss. So people, for example, were afraid of showing sometimes vulnerability to their advisors if they had feared that uh, the reaction that they got wasn't exactly what they were expecting. I've actually written about this in other kinds of contexts. If you think about um, uh, the Me Too movement, uh, for example, hashtag Me Too, uh, where women and men uh, all over started uh, describing their experiences of harassment, one of the things that's interesting about it is the extent to which many men early on started saying, I had no idea how bad this was, literally just articulating a simple lack of knowledge. Now, if you think about this, it's actually really interesting, and I'll tell you why. You might remember a parallel. Remember, remember a few years ago when the videos of police brutality started coming out, a lot of African-Americans were saying, well, yeah, we've been saying this for a long time. The only difference is that this is now on video. And a lot of whites were saying, oh, my goodness, I had no idea. Now, actually, in a simple network sense, that actually makes perfect sense. Uh, because African-Americans are only about 13% of the population, the average white American has no close black friends. It's just simply as a matter of composition. Other things also play a role. But even in a world in which nobody's racist and only people only have a small number of close friends, uh, the average number of whites, the average white person would have, a, would have no black friends simply because there aren't enough black friends for them to go around. Right? The compositions of the two groups are different. But when it comes to gender, uh, women are 50% of the population. The average male is, in fact, close uh, to at least one female. Mother, daughter, sister, aunt, best friend, co-worker, whatever it is. And so, in fact, it shouldn't have been the case that people were, in fact, surprised because they would have gotten exposure through it through the people who were victims of this issue. And I wonder whether some of it didn't have to do with the nature of incompatible expectations. You know, uh, a person might have just wanted to vent about a guy ogling or being an asshole, excuse me, or being a bad person or doing something uh, sexually inappropriate um, or an assault uh, or touching. uh, And fear, they might have feared that their close partners might have gotten into the protector mode or into, you know, aggressor mode instead of just uh, listener mode. So I think that the idea that people are in behaviorally multiplex relations to those they're close to actually helps explain a lot of why we would avoid people we're close to. Notice that by contrast, the people we are not close to are typically people with whom we don't have such diverse relationships. Not always, but just uh, as a general uh, rule of thumb, the closer you are, the more different roles that person plays in your life. Ironically, that means the more possibilities for something, some topic to elicit a possible ambiguity about the kind of response you might get. Yeah, great. So that actually ties perfectly to what I was hoping you would talk about next is sort of this idea that sometimes these weaker ties are um, called upon because there's actually less to lose. Um, and, and so I was hoping you would sort of talk about that. And then also just the idea that, you know, homophily is often used. And, and you say in your book, it threatens to become a non-explanation when it's used to account for connections too much. And so you sort of point out that there's actually different types of similarity between people. 
Um, so yeah, so I was hoping you could talk sort of more about this less to lose with weak ties and then how people do find similarity in different ways with others. So that's right. That's one of the interesting things that we found. So, um, so there is absolutely others being equal, less to lose from being wrong and confiding in a weak tie. But that was actually not the only reason we found people turn to weak ties. In other words, it wasn't just that they were avoiding uh, their strong ties. They were actually actively pursuing weak ones. Um, and they were pursuing people they were not that close to, not just because they thought, well, there's nothing to lose, but also because they thought they would actually get something from particular kinds of weak ties. And here what we found is actually uh, quite interesting. So, And this is also something that I did not know ahead of time and that emerged just from digging into the data over and over and over and uncovering what the data seemed to be telling us. One of the interesting things that we found was the importance uh, of cognitive empathy. So the idea of incompatible expectations was important to understand why people avoid strong ties. The idea of cognitive empathy was essential to understanding why they pursued weak ties, why they would go to people that they're not that close to. Now, um, I have to make a distinction that might seem obvious to some, but in some cases, uh, it's actually uh, not that obvious at all, which is the distinction between sympathy and empathy. Uh, So we can think about sympathy in this context as um, kind of the feeling of pity or sorrow for the difficulty that somebody's experiencing. Whereas empathy, and particularly cognitive empathy, is just the idea that you can understand somebody's experience as they are experiencing it. So I'll give you an example. When you see those, uh, I don't know if they still have those, but those old ads on the television about uh, that are trying to elicit donations to fund an anti-hunger campaign, there's always a child who looks emaciated who's experiencing hunger. Now, when you see that, you definitely feel sympathy. And it is that sympathy that makes you want to donate. But you don't really feel empathy unless you yourself have experienced prolonged hunger for a long time. Yeah? And so that, that is a context where sympathy, not empathy, is motivating your action. In contrast, the majority of the time uh, when the students were pursuing people they were not close to, they were not looking for sympathy. They were looking for cognitive empathy. In other words, they weren't pursuing people who, even though they were not close, say, had a reputation for being nice. Although sometimes that happened, but it was actually not the predominant experience. It wasn't people who were going to be nice or sympathetic. It was literally people who were going to get it. In other words, they were pursuing people who were likely to understand their predicament as they they themselves understood it. And what's interesting about this is that the more unique the predicament the more it was something that not a lot of people would get, the more likely they were to turn to somebody not very close to them, because by definition, it was more likely to be uh, a person who is, uh, uh, most of your ties in your life are weak ties. And so if you're looking for something that's hard to find, you're much more likely to find it in a weak tie than in a strong one. And this happened often. So for example, you know, uh, a student who had mistakenly agreed to lead an ethnic organization of her own ethnic group and uh, was trapped because if she decided to just quit in the middle of it, she would have experienced shaming and extreme embarrassment, not just embarrassment, but shaming from people in her group, 
But at the same time, the amount of work this was taking was far more than she had anticipated, and it was starting to hurt her academic performance. Uh, this was really, 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 really troubling. And what's interesting is uh, this is actually not something that a lot of people can honestly say they cognitively understand. This idea that you're leading an, an organization that you don't want to leave, but you can't leave because there would be serious social consequences. And uh, the the only person who actually understood her when she wanted to vent about this was the person who had led that same ethnic organization the year before she did. They were not close, uh, but this person, same ethnicity, same position, uh, also previously, also a graduate student, um, and had served this position, uh, served in this position previously, could understand this predicament better than anyone. And so she just turned to this person. Um, I've actually found this uh, in multiple contexts after sort of uncovering this in the context of the of the book. A lot of the time, people will just vent to somebody who even gives an inkling that they're likely to get it the way you get it. So then in chapter six, you sort of move into um, this idea that, you know, that there's actually different forms of activation. And so speaking about how people um, talk to people who sort of get it, it's this idea that, you know, you might have not thought about talking to this particular person, but they show up to a meeting and you are chatting afterwards and then you decide to go ahead and tell them this thing that you need to talk to somebody about. So I was hoping you could talk more about sort of the spontaneity sometimes or, or these different forms of activation that you found in the interview. Yeah, so this is actually an issue where it's very important to think carefully as a sociologist and where your ability to conduct an interview that is sensitive about your own biases as a thinker plays a role. So if you think about what you just said, we just said that people often avoided the people they were close to because of the fear of incompatible expectations and the ambiguities that might be at play, and that people explicitly sought out people they were not close to uh, because they could assume that those people were going to get it because of the expectation of cognitive empathy. Now, if you think about this as a decision-making process, what you have is a process that in both cases, there, there are very different things at play, People are thinking about the possibility of talking to a person before they approach the person. In other words, these are reflective or deliberative processes. What uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist and others have called uh, system two thinking. This is a kind of thinking in which you literally reflect on your actions before you undertake them. But one of the most interesting things that we found in the book, as a result, again, of going into the data shifting how we ask certain questions, was the extent to which people were actually not that deliberative, often, about how they ended up talking to. And this is something that actually required us to develop different ways of doing the interviews. And I ended up um, writing a lot about this in our methodological appendix because it ended up being pretty important. Let's look at it this way. Suppose I ask you um, about an action that you've done. You had a deeply personal issue and you spoke to Bob. And if I say, well, why did you sp speak to Bob? You're going to give me an answer. Person, as you probably are as a graduate student, you're going to give me an answer that makes a lot of sense. But that doesn't mean necessarily that when you were at the moment deciding whether to talk to Bob, that that is the process you're engaged in. And I don't mean this in the sense that you could be lying, which of course is always the case, or that you could be trying to represent yourself as really, really thoughtful, which is always the case. Just the mere fact that I ask you why presumed that there was a why and put you in a position of having to give me a why. 
So one of the things that we started doing is that we started asking people, instead of why did you talk to Bob, we'd say, huh, so you talked to Bob. How did it come about? And what's interesting is that when we ask that, the first thing that happens is that you shift the question from one in which you presume a deliberative motivation ahead of one to one in which you just are trying to understand a set of circumstances in which your actions might or might not have been motivated in the traditional sense. And one of the things we did uncovered that was really, um, really uh, impactful in my thinking about this is a lot of the time it was unexpected. And it was just not, it was not just unexpected in the sense that um, they ended up talking, for example, sharing more than they thought they would share. Uh, it was unexpected in the sense that they wouldn't even have guessed that Bob is a person they might have talked to if they sat down and thought, who should I talk to about this problem? And this happened in a number of ways. So think, for example, um, all the students are in a seminar and the speaker uh, gives a talk about a sensitive topic. Uh, and that topic, whatever it is, called depression, hits a nerve. You're walking out of the seminar and there's another student in front of you and the student bursts something out about, oh my goodness, that struck close to home. Next thing you know, you feel the same thing and you say, gosh, tell me about it. And you're renting to this person who you don't really know that well about this experience. This wasn't really a case of you're sitting there and thinking, I want to find somebody who's going to get it. And I'm going to go and approach that person to talk to about this. This was a circumstance in which, you know, the seminar prompted the possibility. You were walking out, they were there, and then you just vented. There was actually a surprising amount of this. If you think about the phenomenon of uh, speaking to a total stranger on, your, on the airplane about a deeply personal issue, <laughs> which happens often, a lot of the time... A lot of the time when people experience that, um, they were just there and they started talking and they didn't really think very carefully about sharing or not sharing with this person. What's more, and, and what's actually quite important here, is a lot of the time it'll happen because they prompted it. You had this idea that you were worried about, or heck, maybe you had an idea that you hadn't thought about very carefully that was just kind of sitting in the back of your mind. You're talking to somebody, they bring it up, they bring it up, you say, oh my goodness, me too. And next thing you know, you're venting to this person about this particular issue. This chapter, we called it because they were there. In other words, there were many times where uh, asking what motivated the decision to go to a particular person is actually the wrong answer. The wrong question, excuse me. The right question is, what were the circumstances that made it possible or likely for this person to suddenly blurt uh, something deeply personal to another person who was just sitting there. So then in the third part of your book, you sort of move into making this generalizable to, you know, everyone else sort of outside of graduate school. Um, and you use this um, survey, the Core Networks and Important Alters survey. And in that, you find that 45% of core discussion partners were not people whom respondents considered important to them. So you did find a lot of parallels between graduate students and the general public. So I was hoping you could tell us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. And this is actually one of the most important parts of the book. So the heart of the book is a case study. And it's a case study where we study a very small set of people who we uh, got to know very well, and we interviewed and explored carefully over a period of time. And we needed a case study because we needed to understand these processes inductively, from the ground up and deeply. Many of these ideas I'd never would even have thought of had I not done careful 
extended interviews over hours with people who were trying to struggle with, uh, uh, with who were trying to explain to us how they struggled with with uh, with the difficulties that are associated with the first year. But graduate students are just graduate students, and uh, and it would be it would be wrong to infer that you'll necessarily experience that you'll necessarily have the same results. We would necessarily. And you were interviewing a nationally representative population. And so we did two things. Uh, so there, there are actually really two separate questions here. Uh, one is the question of empirical generalizability, and one is the question of theoretical generalizability. The question of empirical generalizability is whether um, the, the practices that the graduate students engaged in um, are practices that people who are not graduate students, that average people in general, would engage in. In other words, would Americans, for example, on average, also talk about very important matters with people they're not close to? Will they also avoid the people they're close to sometimes? Will they also talk to people they're not close to because they're seeking cognitive empathy? Will they also talk to people uh, they haven't thought about approaching simply because they were there? But then separate from the question of empirical generalizability, which is important, is the equally important question of theoretical generalizability. In what other kinds of conditions could I expect phenomena like those phenomena I saw among graduate students in graduate school to happen. And we, ex we explored both. And uh, for the first, I actually used a, a number of surveys, two that I fielded uh, in addition to uh, some survey results produced by others that helped uh, speak to the questions we found. And it was in fact the case that among Americans in general, people not only had a lot of people they were not close to in their core discussion network, but if you actually did a version of the same process where you followed their behavior and you asked people uh, what was the last time they talked about something that was personally important to them, and then you asked them what that was, what the topic of conversation was, and then you asked them who they talked to on that occasion, it's actually the case that for those last discussions, uh, about half, actually slightly more than half for Americans in general had happened with people they weren't close to. It's actually very, very common. And again, this is one set of surveys, and these results always need to be replicated and so on, but it was actually quite, quite compelling. We also find evidence of, of, of the other patterns, the, the tendency to think about close relationships as ambiguous and complicated, and as people you might actually want to avoid uh, uh, in another in other, in, in other large-scale survey. Same with the idea of approaching people because you expect them to understand your predicament. Now, in terms of conceptual generalizability, this was actually one of the most interesting parts of the book, where with the conceptual lens, with the ideas that we uncovered with the graduate student, I started seeing a whole bunch of other relationships in a, in a different light. So I, I explored, for example, um, how doctors, uh, when they make medical mistakes, for example, if surgeons kill somebody accidentally or, you know, they, uh, they make a mistake that might hurt a patient, uh, separate from their official reporting duties, how do they, who do they vent to about this? This feels terrible. Who do they end up talking to about this? It turns out they're more likely to talk to other doctors, even people they're not close to, than they are to talk to their own spouses, because other doctors are going to know what it feels like to accidentally kill somebody or to accidentally hurt somebody, uh, even though you're not, your job is to save lives. Um, I found that I found similar kinds of, uh, Patterns again, a different different ways of looking at other circumstances. When I studied um, 
uh, how uh, victims of sexual assault in the military uh, decide whether or not to tell their commanders. Many of the ambiguities of our expectations seem to play a role there as well. I also looked at, for example, how uh, in the 1990s, there are a long set of narratives, first-person narratives by teachers in public schools who were gay or lesbian uh, and uh, who were not out to their colleagues. And the reason this was a big deal is because in many parts of the country, particularly uh, in more conservative parts of the country, uh, you could get fired uh, at the time. You could get fired under uh, pretext of, you know, corrupting the children and so on. And so the idea of who to come out to is actually, was actually a pretty important decision that was consequential, not just for your mental health, but frankly, just for your job. And what we found is actually, even in those circumstances with such high costs of being wrong, there were many times where people ended up just confiding in others because they were there. So in that final chapter, we actually spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time looking for other cases. What can I think about differently as a result of what I uncovered uh, with my study of the graduate students? And, and that is what I found. Yeah. So I was just hoping that here at the end, you could wrap up um, your final thoughts about the book for us. So anything that we didn't talk about or, you know, for instance, you talk sort of in this very, very last chapter about um, technology and how you see that it, it played a part or did not play a part. So just sort of like giving us a big takeaway from your findings. Yeah. So, you know, the part of what's actually fascinating about this project is there's a sense in which um, if there's any time when some of the propositions in this book should have been wrong, it's now. And, and as I write, the reason is the internet. And this is the case in two very different ways. So uh, now uh, it is the case that when people are close to others, a lot of the way they interact and maintain touch and so on with their closest, closest friends is really through technology. People text their best friends routinely, particularly the generation that's now uh, in their late 20s. People text their best friends, they, um, they G-chat, uh, they interact on Twitter. They basically use technology to not just connect with you know, long-lost friends, as used to be the case in Facebook, but literally to maintain in touch with even people who are you know, just down the street. And, why, and, why, and the reason this matters is that in the very beginning, when these people... Uh, moved to a new city, a new context, a new town, and started graduate school, it should have been easier than ever to maintain in touch with your core discussion network. If there was ever a time when there was, should not have been a lot of replacement in the first few months, it's now. And yet there was a ton of replacement. People, rather than continuing to text or G-chat or whatever it was with the people back home, they immediately started developing new connections to the people who were right physically in front of them. So even in the age of technology, the physical relationships really mattered. But there's a parallel to this idea that's really methodological in nature and part of the sort of the deeper point of the book. We are in a big data, in the big data era, and we are in the big data era, not just with respect to, well, we are in the big data era, particularly with respect to networks. Uh, everything is recorded. Uh, all those texts, all those uh, Facebook messages, all those likes, all those follows, uh, all those retweets, all of it is recorded. There are hundreds and thousands of uh, technology-based communication, uh, communication technology-based and network studies. There's, there's tons. 
So if there's ever a time where you could have studied personal networks by just looking at the big data, it would have been today, 2017. And yet uh, a lot of the most important findings, in fact, all of the core important insights from this book could not have been uncovered had I not gone to one-on-one interviews where I just talked to people uh, in face-to-face as in the dimensional methods and asked them to probe deeply uh, their relationship to others, their relationship to their difficulties, and how they turn to their others to face their difficulties. And so it's ironic and I think important that even in the big data era, I had to do a qualitative project for me to arrive at the most important findings in this book. This tells me that as big data get bigger and bigger, qualitative research of this kind is actually going to be more, not less important. And that uh, although we should always sort of test everything on large-scale data and so on, unless we as social scientists uh, are willing and able to repeatedly go back to the field, go back to the ground, go back to the individuals and probe human motivation uh, from the ground up, uh, the growth of science uh, is likely to suffer. Um, I was hoping you could tell us what you're working on now, actually. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'm working on a couple of things. Uh, uh, one is I've begun a series of uh, projects, and they might either be small books or big papers, on what it means to do qualitative social science in a scientific era. So uh, how do you do uh, ethnographic work and interview-based work in a context where uh, you're not just speaking to ethnographers or interviewers, but you're speaking to economists and demographers who know or who are willing to take that qualitative research is socially scientific, but aren't clear on how to read your work as science? I think this is an extremely important and challenging question. And um, I'm beginning a set of projects uh, hoping to address it. Uh, The other thing I'm doing is I'm trying to understand in a deeper way how it is that uh, much more broadly and across multiple kinds of contexts, how people use their networks as coping mechanisms. And this is an extension of the book, and it's a project that's in its early phases, but particularly in the context of isolation, uh, when people are isolated from their local context, when their relationship to those around them are ambiguous because they themselves are not necessarily a natural fit with the local environments. Um, how do those people cope? This is actually one of the one of the issues I was not able to address in the book as much as I wanted to. Uh, in the book, I studied three uh, three departments, the entire entering cohort in three departments, and there were about thirty eight people total. And because the numbers are so small, um, I many issues affecting uh, minority students, particularly Black and Latino students, and particularly LGBT students. Uh, in my sample because I couldn't disclose their conditions without making them obvious to the rest of their cohorts. And exploring uh, fit in this particular way is something I'm interested in doing and I've begun thinking about for a second project. Great. Those sound really interesting. Um, So thanks again for being here today to talk about your book, Someone to Talk to, Mario. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure.